the, the, so the basis for this whole thing, Hanukkah and the Oral, well, I think before I give you my source sheets, why would I be talking about Hanukkah and the Oral Torah? Well, because that's the only place it is. Okay. Because it's not the Bible. Everywhere. And no text holiday. Purim is in the Bible. Hanukkah is nowhere in the Bible. Not I got that in the Bible. Right. Bible. Right. It is not in the Bible. What else? If anything else. It's a rabbinic. Right, it's rabbinic. Well, that's it's it's a right. Right. right? What is rabbinic? And also the menorah almost has become a symbolism of the old Torah. Right. So we're gonna talk about why, right? So here's sort of three possible reasons or ways of connecting, and we'll see where they come from, hopefully over the course of the next certain amount of time, right? The simplest reason to say Hanukkah is like a holiday of the oral Torah, because it's not in the written Torah. It is, in fact, the only holiday that's not in the written Torah at all, right? Not in Tanakh. Not even, frankly, we'll see a little bit, not even, it doesn't even have its own Masecha in the oral Torah, in our, like, organized oral Torah, right? It sort of comes up by the back door. I'm sure you guys have seen some of these verses already, right? In Masecha Shabbat. It does not have, oh, Masecha is a tractate, thank you. It doesn't have, there's no tractate Hanukkah. We have a tractate Megillah, there's no tractate Hanukkah. There's not even a chapter that's like, in something else, it's like, oh, by the way, here are the laws of Hanukkah. It sort of comes in, like, what kind of candles can you light on Shabbat? Oh, you can also use some of these candles for Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? Sort of like, this, this little backdoor thing. It actually does appear in something called Masechah Sofring, which we will talk about later. Um, it's rabbinic. Right? Meaning the status of the holiday, like Purim, but unlike the other holidays, um, is rabbinic. Now that's an interesting question. Is the oral Torah rabbinic? Right? We have sort of two kinds of distinctions floating around out there. We have written versus oral Torah, and we have rabbinic versus biblical. Wasn't that the same thing, more or less? So that's the question, right? I would suggest it's not obvious that those are the same, right? It's interesting because we tend to keep them as a Right. Certainly, halakhically, that's not true. Right. In terms of formal halakhic analysis, there are things that could be deduced from the oral Torah. For example, what are you allowed to do on Shabbat? Is that in the written Torah? No. That would very like arguably oh. be called the oral Torah, right? Yeah. The list of prohibited and permitted activities. Right. It's sort of like there are there are verses that say don't do malachot. Don't. A few of them are there, but the idea of what they are and how you know what they are is much more in the oral Torah camp, but a lot of those are like a biblical strength, at least according to the rabbis and everything, right? Um, so it's not clear that this rabbinic biblical thing really maps onto it, but maybe there's something to at least think of here of like, is the power of rabbis related to the power of the oral Torah? Even if they're not the same thing. Well, the oral Torah is the rabbis. I mean, it was given to Moshe and then the prophets and then to the rabbis. Right. right, but the rabbis have have multiple powers. Right? The rabbis have sort of the power of the received tradition, and maybe that sort of being in that tradition is what gives them the power to also make their own laws, even the laws that are not actually coming from the Bible according to their interpretive principles. Um, and the last thing, this idea of the menorah, which I would sort of try and make it a little bit broader, right? Is there something about the nature of Hanukkah that's connected to the nature of Torah Shabbat You understand what I'm saying? Oh, right? That's a good question. Like, right, if the menorah is the symbol of, becomes a symbol of Torah Shabbat oral Torah. It does? Where? Well, that, 
Libya was was positing that, but we will see that that is true. The symbol of the nation. I don't know. I mean, seven bridges. I've read that that the ark in the in the tabernacle, the the ark could be a symbolism of the written Torah, because you put inside the way inside put the the broken tablet and the whole tablet and. And the menorah could be because it's illumination, so it means using your mind to expound on things. So it could be the metaphor, symbol of Allah. Yeah. So we will totally see things oh, like that, right? But the idea that there's something about Hanukkah, either in our practices of Hanukkah or in the story of Hanukkah, that's connected to like orality or the oral Torah in some way. It's a great substantive connection to orality. So, Amora, uh, it means that the the Karai Jews do not celebrate Hanukkah oh, because they're not quite Hamidic. Uh, they don't know what it is. I mean, it's a good question. I have no idea. They probably don't. They know. Oh, they would. That's right. Okay, so these are sort of like three sort of framing ways of approaching this possibility, um, which will come, as you'll see, partly, the, the sort of the, um, the or text of this is this Gemara, which I will, I'm about to give you, in Yoma. Um, Yoma is a text that has to do with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Thank you. She says, and then she pauses. Um, so let's not super relevant to what we're about to do, but it's useful. Um, the translations here, this is from senior translation. So many of them I did my own myself, so I apologize for whatever typos we are about to find. From Sino I didn't, I cut and pasted, so that one should be okay. Um, so let's read this sort of deliberately. Um, maybe I'll start you off and then I'll ask you to look, to sort of study with each other for a little bit and we'll yeah, we'll do that. We'll come back together. We'll go to Mincha, then we'll come back together again. Um, so it starts with the following. It's in a longer discussion of the, um, the nature of moonlight, let's say. right? So the Rebbe says, Rebbe is Rebbe, Rabbi Judah the Prince, sort of the putative author of the Mishnah. The rising column of the moon, right, Timur Shalavana, is different from that of the sun. Right, the moon column rises straight like a stick, but the sun irradiates in all directions. Right, so I guess this is you know if you find if you walk out of a cave and you don't know what time of day it is and you see a little bit of light over the horizon, how do you know if it's the sun or the moon? The sun irradiates in different directions than the moon does not. Okay. Yes. Um, so. Then we have the following. Amar Rabbi Abahu. What is the reason of Rabbi's opinion? Rabbi meaning Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who says this thing about the difference between sun and moonlight. He quotes Psalm 22. For the leader, Lamnatseach al Ayelet Hashachar. Regarding Ayelet Hashachar, now literally this is sort of like the hind deer, the hind doe, whatever you want, I don't know. The deer, some sort of one of these like um, desert ruminants. It's animals, and they have antlers. This is going to be important, as we'll see. Um, the, so, like the the sort of the dawn doe, um, just as the antlers of the hind branch off this way and that way, so the light of the dawn is scattered in all directions. Why would you say a yelat hashachar? What kind of a phrase is that? The the dawn deer, right? It must be that there's something 
in similar, now I don't know if this is it must be, but this is sort of a rabbinic way of reading a verse that like all of the, all of the juxtapositions are sort of like over-determined. So, you know, there's something similar between deer and sunlight, or and dawn, right? They both go in multiple directions. The antlers of the deer and the light of the sun. Okay. Um, it turns out, in, in part of the part that we skipped here, there, this, this psalm, Psalm 22, is connected by many different rabbinic sources to Esther. Ayelet HaShachar, she's like a deer. Um, where they have this whole thing about why is Esther like a deer, we could skip that. Maybe to get with each other, in pairs or whatever, where it says Ravasi said, um, just to, like, sort of read it with each other or by yourself. Think about it for a minute, sort of like, what, what does this metaphor that you're about to read mean? What does it add to your understanding of either Esther or Hanukkah or deers and this, this psalm? And what questions does it raise? What, if, what incongruities does it maybe generate? Is that fair? So let, let, I think that, just look, look at, why don't you guys look at it for like five minutes and then we'll talk. What is Esther compared to the storm? The reason, for those who read it, the reason I included that, first of all, it's here. I included it because this idea of always feeling like the first time, even though it's not, I think it's, I mean, I don't think that's what it means here, but that's, like I was saying, I think the reason that the rabbis are motivated to say that is because they have this idea that Esther was married to Mordecai, in which case, how can that's she... That's one theory, but it's not the only one. Right, but this is the, the people who are saying this might so subscribe to that theory. As a virgin. So, exactly, how because she passed how can, how can the king so have how, a woman with some other man so have access to it? How did she pass? So according to this, she has uh, the part that you might not have read, or Rizair says she has a, basically a narrow vacuum. Yeah, always, each time, whatever. So the reason I included that, meaning like, leave this aside, all the like gender implications are obviously very strong, but like, you know, setting those aside, the idea of something that's not new but seems new, but seems new, maybe it's like an idea, just a seed to plant in your head that maybe we'll come back to. Um, or we'll sort of, I don't think, you know, it's like, this is like an impressionistic well, connected thing. Disgusting, dirty jokes told by males, right? Something like that. Just, you know, this Sorry, is man. so upending what I grew up with. <laughs> what is? We never think of Esther as being sexual. We think of her as being a tzaddeket, you know, that well, she this is exactly and then she had to sleep with him. This is it, right? Well, but you know, in, in right, Beth like, Yaakov, they're not going to. Right, but what's the nature of the beauty contest? Right, beauty you don't think about yeah. that, but yeah. if you read the book, it's there. Yeah, what um, is the real beauty contest? Right. Our Moray Talmud did tell us that Hashem was very kind, and because she was she was not in love with Achavberosh. So he created a beautiful doll, like a golem, who would walk from her bedroom to oh, his bedroom. Is this incredible? Every, no, like, not like a golem, like a golem. A golem. Like a golem, like a flesh and blood golem, but like a robot, you know. And, and, and he created a robot who would, uh, a live person, but a robot who would... Uh, <laughs> That's amazing, I never heard that. Um, so you have those repentant attraction, and by that, uh, you listen to them. Hmm? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because of attraction What's that? between the two. Okay. And, okay. And that's why there was a tension. What is repetitive attraction? Back and forth, back and forth. You know what she wasn't discarded. Good, right. 
Right. I mean, explain. Right. It's, it's an attempt to explain several things. And the question of Esther's sexuality is actually it is it does come up in the Gemara in terms of where like how how could you do this? The idea but that like But isn't whatever. she used also as a basis of getting women who were raped out from? They, they talk to her about it being completely passive. Right. That uh, Esther being passive, sort of right, being married to Ahasuerus, which is not was right. basically the idea that she could continue to sleep with Mordechai. So long as she was not convicted. And they use that to oh spare women who were raped okay. from being divorced. Okay. They, they do use it as yeah. a logical argument. Fair um, yeah. Could they you explain how they out? So, wait a minute. This is a little bit far afield. This is a little bit far afield. Let me just. I know, I put it here, so maybe I was mistaken. Halakhically, a woman who commits adultery can't stay married to her husband. A woman who's so, no, not exactly. Um, a woman who, in general, let's leave aside the set, the set I'm not going to get there, but there are certain circumstances which I'm not about to say is not true, but basically, a woman who sleeps with another man while married has to get divorced. But, and most, uh, other than the wife of a Kohen, rape is not considered an affair, right? Because it's considered that, like, women can basically, like, are not... Age, like agents of that, which is how we would think of it, also, right? It's not you're not. It's not like an affair. We wouldn't call being raped having an affair. So like they're different, and one of the sources for how they're different is this idea that Esther was married to Mordechai, yet she could still remain married to Mordechai, even while she had been abducted by Ahasuerus, basically, until she goes to Ahasuerus willingly at the end of the story. Um, and that's when she says, "Oh, now I'm going to lose both of you, basically." Um, okay. Some of our field of interesting Esther, whatever. Interesting Esther points. I, I don't know if Robert Silver also had one to talk about Esther all the time. He and I are working on Esther stuff together. So not this aspect of Esther. Not, not this aspect, but yeah. So Ravasi said, this is the, this is the real thing. Ravasi said, Lama nimshala Esther l'shachar. Why is Esther like the dawn? Lamar Ma shachar sof kol halayla. Just as the dawn is the end of the night, so is Esther the end of miracles. Ah, uh, right. So, okay. So, first of all, let's pause for a minute, right? Esther is like the dawn because we have other reasons which I didn't include for you to connect Esther to this psalm, Psalm 22, which is for Ayelet Hashachar, oh, the dawn, whatever. Okay, that's the reason for this. What does that mean? Why is she like the dawn? Okay. So, what do they say? The dawn is the end of night, and Esther is the end of miracles. But, yeah. but what why do you think miracles that? compared to night? Okay, that is one important question. And there aren't any obvious, blatant, flaming miracles here. It's all that's the point. a scrap of practice or yeah. a coincidence or fog of Dunkirk or something. It's not obvious, flaming miracles. That's the point. But what is very adult here is that end of miracle is seen as something positive. In the traditional oh. maturity of spiritual yeah. maturity, mm-hmm. where you don't need miracles right. anymore. So that's like a possible answer to this question. I just want to make sure right the 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 weirdest thing in some ways about saying this, Esther is the the end of the miracles you would say the last of the miracles exactly. sort of um, is that like why would you say that the the period of history that has miracles is like the night of history and then the period without yeah. miracles is like the day of history and right you might say further the dawn is like this neither here nor there point so Esther's kind of in between it's a miracle but it's a hidden miracle it doesn't look like a miracle it's sort of it's on the cusp right 
Um, why would you say that miracles and night are parallel? So what you're suggesting is because, in fact, the post-miracle spirituality is like a more mature, a better... So awakened state, actually an illuminated state, mm -hmm. that you don't need... Uh, the, yeah. That's really interesting because what well, I think that, that a miracle would be more obvious uh, more right. obvious, not exactly on a higher level, but wow, that's oh, a miracle for me. Right. It's really cool. It's very counterintuitive, <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah. it's, that's why I want to pause and hold the yeah. question, because it is a counterintuitive, it's important to note that it's counterintuitive. Why would you say the end of the miracles is like the end of the night? Shouldn't you say that the night is like the period without miracles, and the miracles of themselves are some sort of illumination? Right, they're saying the opposite. And Maybe one way to read it is, right, you could even call it the period of enlightenment, right? Like the period when they're is when miracles are not like the sort of standard spiritual affair, it has other enlightened qualities. But it's, it's interesting, I mean, the idea that we don't have prophecy anymore, and that's considered like a coming down from a level that we used to have. Why are miracles turned around like that? Right. So, right. One can ask, is it really... Uh, let me hold this, yeah. talk about this for a second. Okay. It's a good question, right? This is, I'm, I'm very partial to Olivia's reading. I'm, like, I would say, I said it a little <coughs> maybe different way, but like, yeah, basically that there is some claim here about the nature, potentially, about the nature of life without miracles, that it has its own form of light or enlightenment, you could call it, right? Mm -hmm. But that, you know, that's a little bit surprising to, to read in the Talmud, frankly. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. so the question is a very strong question, I think. The Maharsha, who you have in source number two, mm -hmm. actually asks this question. The Maharsha mm -hmm. was some sort of a medieval commentator. I'm like blanking on his name right now. Um, you find him in the back of the Talmud, right? Um, he's not on the page somewhere, but he's in the back. And his commentary is divided into two sections, like um, called depending. He has sort of like two different sections depending on sort of whether something is like a halachic or non-halachic import. Um, so in Chidushe Agadah, he asks this question, right? At first glance, it would seem that troubles are always analogized to night and redemption today, right? Night is the bad thing, right. so why do we say the miracles are the night? It should have said the opposite. Esther is like the evening, just as the evening is the end of the day, so Esther is the end of the miracles, right? That would have, made, that would have been what you expected. Um, now, fine, you have Psalm 22, but then maybe Psalm 22 should not be about Esther if it's about the dog. Um, so then he, he gives his own answer, which is the following. Um, and the answer regarding what it says, that the well-known miracles in the world began at midnight. Um, right? That, in fact, night is a, is a... Don't think about night metaphorically. Think about the time that things actually occur. The miracles tend to happen at night. Maybe you would say even because miracles are required to illuminate that kind of darkness, right? Not illuminate, but that like so the time of darkness is the time when you feel the need for miracles. Yes, that's exactly what he says here, right? Okay, yeah. this is this is also super interesting, right? What's his proof text for the fact that miracles happen at midnight or at night? Because of that piyu, that exact song, as we say at the seder, it happened at night and it goes through all of like the various miracles through salvation throughout Jewish history. It says, like, this happened tonight, that happened tonight. Um, right, so he says, that is what the poet says. Which, by the way, is like, yeah, it's interesting, right, to use piyut as a source. It is true that a lot of the piyut team are actually extremely old, um, and they reflect even older Midrashic traditions sometimes. Um, so, 
okay? Um, right, so, right, you made many, many miracles at night, and that Piyut even says specifically that Haman the Agagite started to make, to write his, his books at night. So the miracle of Purim happened at night. Rather than seeing night as some sort of metaphorical thing, right, the miracle of Esther happened at the end of something that started at night, right? Like the miracle, in some ways it's the miracle that delivers you from night rather than sort of this general thing and then the post-miracle era of history is the daytime. Um, I don't think it's like the, the most amazing reading of this, or rather, I think this reading of the Gemara also has challenges. The reason I brought it is twofold. First of all, this question is like pretty strong and was obvious to him. Second of all, this idea of, we're going to see it in one other place also, the idea of bringing proof from these poems, maybe that's also sort of related to the orality of Hanukkah, right? It doesn't have any one, this is actually about Purim, but like, it doesn't have any one source. It's like, this is where you learn about these later day miracles. Mm. Um, okay. So then, the Gemara has the following. Right? So first we say, Esther is the end of the miracles, just like the dawn is the end of the night. So the first question is like, what is that, what we just talked about is, what is that metaphor supposed to do for you? I think we sort of tried to get a little bit out of that. The next question is, is this even true? Is Esther even the end of the miracles? Right? Because Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah, in fact, comes after Esther. So why are you saying that Esther is the end of the miracles? And what do they say? They're only referring to holidays that are written. Right. Oh. Esther is the end of the oh, written miracle. Oh, I don't know. Well, that's an interesting one, actually. <coughs> what it says in Hebrew is nalikatev, things that were given to be written down. What was given to be written down, right? The story, the miracle, the holiday, right? It meant it's the end of the written miracles, right? Hanukkah apparently is a miracle that happens in like the post-night period, if you want to go back oh, to the yeah, yeah. conceptualization, right? But Esther is the end of the written miracles, right? What is unwritten here, if you will? Sorry. Um, Hanukkah is an unwritten miracle. Right. It's even unwritten in this text, the Hanukkah is well, it's unwritten in the, in the term of the exhibit. It's not, it's not in the Tanakh. So what does unwritten mean? Well, it wasn't included in the canon. Is that what it means? Right, so that's, that's where we get back to the question that we opened with, right? If this is sort of like the basic reason that people want us, or the text that provides the jumping off point for the whole discussion of Hanukkah and orality, you get back into the same questions. What does it mean that Hanukkah was not given to be written? Right? Does that mean just that it's not in the Bible? Does that mean that it's not as strong as Purim in some way? Does that mean that there's something about the nature of Hanukkah that is connected to the nature of the written Torah or of writing? Right? Or sorry, of the written Torah. Um, so that's going to be our exploration, I hope. Um, and we're going to try and look at the way a few people talk about this. Um, before we do that, maybe... I'm just trying to figure out what's the right way to do this. this is Mincha. Before we do that, maybe let's look at source number four, um, which is a moderately well-known Gemara. I, I, I don't know if I should ever say, you should never say moderately well-known, because if people know it or they don't, like, what's the point of telling you that? Um, the point, I guess my point is, it's not like some obscure thing that I found out. This is like a source that's influential in other people's readings. Um, so, yeah. There's this verse. Before we do that, let's turn. Do people have Tanakh? Sort of. 
Let's turn to Hosea 8. I'll tell you what page it's on in a minute. Thank you. 12.85. Yeah, but we're actually going to be at 12.86, but that is good. The middle of the so this is actually... They were lit at... I think the they're lit at the evening and it stays lit throughout the day. But for 12 hours or 12 hours? I don't remember. Let me check during my class. That would be interesting to know. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So this is basically like God is telling Israel that they're so horrible. They don't do anything right. Um, they make idols. Um, they sow wind and they shall reap a whirlwind. Um, all, you know, all of their, their seeds are not going to grow. Um, because they've got all this bad stuff. So then if we start in verse 11, 1285, 12, we'll now turn to 1286. Right? Ephraim has all these many like sinful altars. They had this repeated vine. Um, so there are many, there are different ways to translate this. Right, what I have in the on the sheet is the 1917 JPS, or maybe not. Um, so I wrote for him the portions, the major portion of my law. They were counted a strange thing. Here it is, the many teachings I wrote for him and treated as something alien. Right here, it's sort of God's expression of frustration. Right, even though I wrote down this Torah, he doesn't care. Right. Um, who doesn't care? He, he, Ephraim, the personified, like, Israel, well, of the northern kingdom here. Um, so, so that's what that verse means in a shot. There's going to be a drasha, meaning a midrashic understanding of that here, on Talmud Bavli, TB Talmud Bavli, in Gitchin. Maybe you guys should, can look at this sort of as a preview for the next, like, Four minutes. We're on source number four, which I think is on page three. It doesn't have a page number on it. The recording device has been on this whole time, but I trust that Jordana will excise all of the illicit information. Illicit. So we're in source number four. We have the following. Rabbi Elazar said, "Rov bichtav umiut al most of the Torah is written. What's the relationship between the oral and the written Torah? Is the oral Torah like little small supplements, little like, you know, margin notes, but the, 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 or the, the written Torah is like the, the real Torah, more or less? Um, right? What is proof that most of the Torah is written? Because we have the following verse, what we just saw in Hosea. Now, in the Pshat of Hosea, Rubei, how Rubei Torah means like the multitudes or the many, mm-hmm. so many of my teachings are Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, here they're reading Rove as majority. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other places, this comes up in the Megillah Dester also actually, the end of the few places, the end of the Megillah says, Mordechai is Ratzuil Rove Echav. He is acceptable to Rove Echav, right? So the Pshat there is his many brethren. Rove meaning the multitude of, oh, right. but the people read it. Oh, only to most of his brothers. You never, you know, like only some people didn't like him, some did, right? 
Um, so here too, right, it's a midrashic reading to say Rubei Torati is the mul- like the majority as opposed to the multitude. Um, so that's his proof text. Rabbi Yochanan says, Rov al In fact, most of the Torah is oral, and some of it is written. And what's his proof text? As it says in Exodus 34, which is on page 190 in your Tanakh, Ki al ha'ela. Al pi al pi means according to, mm-hmm. right? But it also, oh, it's a figure of speech. By the mouth of, right? Of oh, oh, what mouth, right? Torah al peh. Al pi al peh, right? Um, if we look at that verse, the actual whole verse, I got mm-hmm. to make this point this morning and this afternoon, um, right? It's usually a good idea to look up the verse that they quote because usually, sometimes there's a highly relevant part in a in the, in the segment of the verse not quoted. So, um, if we look at verse 27, it says the following. So, um, God says various things that it says. Reshi okay. Right? Write these things down for you. Ki al karati itcha Because by how do they translate it? In accordance with in accordance. these commandments, I make a covenant with you and with Israel. Okay. So what is reading the whole verse as? Right. First of all, Alpi Hadvarim Ha'ela is God saying, I, I have made the covenant with you, Alpi Hadvarim Ha'ela. What else is interesting about this verse? Karati is called Right. So, okay. So first of all, right, that there's some, some connection of this sort of whatever is Alpi and the Brit. Actually, Raputner has a whole thing on it, which I didn't bring for you. But that sort of the basis of the Brit is, in fact, the oral Torah, not the written Torah. They're yeah. learning out the um, predominance of the oral Torah, but it's in the context of writing something down. Yes. So it seems like it totally takes a verse out of the Write this down because I'll pee these things. Mm-hmm. I am making the Brit. It's a bit, not only is it sort of like an, a hyper little reading of Al-P to Rashiba Al-Peh, it's against the context of the verse, mm-hmm. right? Or you might say, the, the softer reading would be the verse is referring to both of them, mm-hmm. right? Both Bichtav and Baal-Peh, but the one that is the basis of the covenant is the Al-Peh one, right? That would be sort of a less radical reading of it. But one might be tempted to say, if, especially if you were me, I am tempted to say, but I don't want to like merit. I'm going to suggest. This is a suggestion, so you know, like, with, with whatever strength that carries. Um, there's something really interesting about using the Torah Shaba al to read a verse in the written Torah that is not obviously about the predominance of Torah Shaba al overwriting as being about mm-hmm. orality. Right. This verse, if you read it just in the Torah, the written Torah, does not obviously sound like it's about the predominance of orality over writing. In fact, it mentions writing, unlike many of the times that sort of the verse is about transmission. A lot of the verses are like, go tell Israel, right? Here, one of the few places where God is actually saying, go write this down, and then the rabbis come along and say, like, oh no, that's actually about oral transmission, Right? There's so, there's sort of like form follows well, content. The, 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 the oral initially. Like, yeah. No matter what. Uh, you, I could see why why one would see the contradiction, not in my eyes. Actually, it means 
What I'm saying right now is so important that two people are having a conversation and two, bus two businessmen or business person. Now it's what we're saying is so important, let's write it down. In other words, the writing down stress the importance of the, the orality. Right. That the oral is, is the, yeah, it's the, the, fact that it's it, the kernel, the core. The fact that it has been written down proves that this orality is so important. Because it's been said in or that whatever is written has right. been said orally first. But because orality has its, its uh, way of getting degraded, so write it down. So the writing down does not make orality less important, but more important. Do I make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just push that it, there, this Gemara seems to be suggesting that the content is not even the same, right? The, the content of the, right, it says most of the Torah is oral and some of it is written, means that like the, con but maybe this could fit with what you're saying in terms of like you write down some sort of symbolic segment of it, but the real content is transmitted orally. Mm. Right. Or what has been transmitted orally is so important, let's write it down. Right, but I guess what I would say is this Gemara is not, it's not suggesting that the same things are ah, transmitted orally okay. and in so writing. I, I understand. I right. I, no, so I think what you're saying is relevant, but I'm not sure it's, it's here. Yeah, I understand. Um, I understand. Okay. So now he uses this verse. So we have two people, right? Rabbi Lazar says, most of the Torah is written because of this verse. Okay, we talked about how each of these is a non-obvious reading of the verse that they're citing, and that's sort of like a form follows content thing about how the oral Torah can replicate itself in some way. Okay. So now we have two people. Now this is a classic Gemara thing, right? One person has verse A, the other person has verse B. Well, what does the other person do with verse A, right? Why is that not a good proof for them? So here you go. The Edach, Nami, the other guy also, Hakativ, Echtoblo, Rebbe Torati. Rabbi Yochanan, you say most of the Torah is oral, but what about this verse that says, I will write down most of the Torah? Good question. Hahu? Um, Atmuhi Kamitai. He says, no, that's actually a rhetorical question. Would I even write down most of the Torah? No. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the other guy, Vi'idach, Nami, Haktiv, Al Pihadvarim. Okay, you, Rabbi Eliezer, you say most of the Torah is written down. What about this thing that says Al Pihadvarim? That most of it is Al Pah, we'll say. Ahum Mishim did Tekifi Limig That's because it's harder to learn the oral ones, right? Even though, the, in terms of the content, the bulk of it may be written down, the stuff that is oral is the focus of your learning because it, that takes the most time to memorize, basically. Um, now we have the following. So that's like sort of a nice little <coughs> cap on there. Darash Rabbi Yehuda Bar Nachmani Meturgamane to Rabbi Shimon Ben Lakish. So the Meturgaman of Rabbi Shimon Ben Lakish, Meturgaman is the, um, the translator. Um, so people used to have various people who were sort of like their adjuncts, the teachers. They would have somebody who would say over what they were saying louder. They would have somebody who would translate when they were reading the Torah. Um, so he said this, It says, write down these things. And it says, right? How in the same verse does it mention both writing and oral transmission? This is our verse, right? We noted that is in the same verse. Now the Gemara sort of gets around back to it through the back door. Um, right. Things that are written down, you can't say orally, 
things that are oral you can't say in writing. Uh, and then there's further address showed about what exactly can you write. And then Rabbi Yochanan says, Lo karat hakadosh baruch hu brit im Yisrael, ela bishvil devarim shebet al peh, because of that verse, right? The basis of the covenant is the, written, is the oral Torah. So what do we make of this idea that depending on how things are categorized, either written or oral, that's how they have to stay. You can't cross them over. Is this why people during Dabney are like mocked to say the Shema actually reading it in the CD? Yes, I think so. I can't say that I'm always mocked to do that with my kids, for example, but yeah, no, that's part of it, or you shouldn't read out that. Well, that's a separate thing from the Sefer Torah, but yeah, mm-hmm. right, there is the same idea, where you shouldn't sort of say yeah. Torah things, well, Pat. Mm. Some people have a thing about benching from a, it's more meritorious to bench from a sitter or a bencher. Yeah, but I think that's separate. That's just in general to make sure you focus, make sure you say all the words, I think. It's not, because that's not Torah Shabbat. No, that's true. Um, so what, why would it be? Why would it be that some the things that's supposed to be written you can't write, you can't unwrite, you can't be oral? That there's has to never between shall I don't understand what that means. What does it mean that something that is written can't be oral? Yeah, so iyatarashim is you don't have permission. It can be sure, but it may not to say it without to say it by heart, to transmit it by heart, to transmit it orally. You can't you can't say to Helen by. Well, I don't know, right? That's sort of, I don't know how you far you can take a book this. in front of you. you. Either you have to have a book in front of you when you say it, or when you teach it, you should have a book in front of you. Oh. And the other, and the other side, that if something is oral, it cannot be written down? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? But that yeah. can't be. Why can't that be right? Because we have tons of, we have right. well, So this is a great question. Does anyone, have, does anyone know did. about this? There was an exigent uh, reason. Right. They thought it was going to be forgotten. So the way the, to- the, Tom, the rabbis conceptualized that is that yeah, it was transmitted orally, and they had no choice because they were afraid it was going to get lost, so they sort of broke this law. They broke the law in order to save it, kind I of. I understand. But this um, law was written by the time they were writing it down, right? Yeah, but I guess they would say it's an older tradition. It may very well be. Right, and the truth is, even if the Mishnah or the Talmud is written down, I don't remember if what I thought it, who the person says this, I included here or not, even if the Mishnah or Talmud is written down, there's basically, I mean, this is a very interesting claim, like question about sort of our era and the era of widely accessible text, and sort of everything is written down and everybody writes down their three on a blog or whatever, but like mm-hmm. in general, even if certain texts were written down, the way of learning them for most people was through a relationship with a teacher, right? <coughs> what does the Mishnah mean? Even the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah is written down, but right, the, right. can you actually learn the laws from just reading the Mishnah, or did you have to read them in the academy with mm-hmm. the glosses of the Gemara, mm-hmm. before the Gemara was a book? Can you learn the Gemara just from reading the Gemara, or do you have to read it in an academy with a person who has traditions about what actually is and is not the halakha, for example? Okay, and, and that's not true with the Tanakh, I suppose? So, I think it, uh, the claim that I would say is that maybe it is true, maybe it's true of everything, right? Even if it, everything that gets written down, the point of the oral Torah is that it's always a supplement, it's something that can okay. never be encapsulated completely. Um, well, the Tanakh this is true of the you would never just read the Zohar. You would re- you would read it with a with a companion or a teacher or master. Right. Also. Right, and the Zohar itself yeah. is very much aware of that yes. sort of that like they, they, they say concise. certain things yeah. are hints. The Zohar even also conceptualizes itself as writing down oral traditions for maybe for the sake of you know preserving them or something like that, but not not that this is how you would actually learn them. You would learn them with your teacher. You wouldn't just open the book. Um, okay. 
not everyone can have a teacher. Hmm. Right. Not everyone has the financial resource or the so time. Right, and the other thing I would say is like historically it's true, but it's not true because there are certain well-known rabbis who are what you call autodidacts who learn in in rooms full of books, right? Um, Like it it has been true. Um, Okay. So let's look at there. I have a basically this is going to be like our basic two rabbinic texts about orality. There's obviously other things that could be relevant that I left off in the interests of brevity. Um, this idea of Hanukkah being deeply connected to orality, this idea that there's a very big difference between the written and the oral Torah, right? If you already want to try and put them together, would you say that the difference between the written and the oral Torah, that they, you can't put one into the other, is the same as the difference between Hanukkah and Purim in some way? That's like a question to percolate, because maybe we're going to see somebody talk about it. I don't remember, but we'll see. Okay, so then we're going to skip about 1,500 years or more. Um, and we're going to look at some uh, sort of uh, mo- modern period, not modern contemporary, but modern period writers that talk about this kind of thing. For example, um, I didn't bring, but I alluded to uh, the very beginning of Rav Hutner on Rav Hutner, um, you know, his, he still has living students today. He, um, he, he the, the first uh, sort of, Thing in his book on Hanukkah is about this question of Hanukkah and Torah Shemalpeh. He says what he says. I didn't include it, but it's, it's interesting. I included a different refunder, which may, we may or may not get to. And then I have here three sort of Hasidic sources um, of various times. So let's look at the, the may even be chronologically first, I think. I think So I have Rabbi Nachman here, source number five. So if you go back, source number three is Rav Tzadak. And source number eight is somebody called Zanei Sassar, who we'll talk about when we get there. Let's look at source number five, because it comes out of this Gemara and Gittin, which we just read. But it, it's not explicitly about the Hanukkah connection at all, but it may be sort of a useful framework for getting later into the Hanukkah questions. Um, so I guess I will read, sorry. Um, there's a little, a little um, echo of our Hanukkah Gemara, which you'll see. So he says, no, there are different types of Torahs. Yesh Torah Shalonid Na Afilu Lidrosh. Who's going to have? So first of all, before we do that, how many types of? He says there's going to be different types of Torah. How many types of Torah do you expect them to have? Two. Two, right? We've been talking about two, oral and written. Turns out there's going to be three, and one of them is going to be like what Lydia's talking about, maybe, right? These esoteric concepts, right? <laughs> Things that are Lodin Na Afilu Lidrosh. We're not given either to sort of public exposition, right? Things that were given over to exposition but were not actually included in the written Torah. Right? And some things were written in the Torah. Right? So on the one hand, you would say the things that made it into the Torah are the most important. On the other hand, if it's true that the things that were not given even to be expounded upon, they're not even derivable through Midrash, like the formal mechanisms of Midrash, maybe. If those are like the esoteric secrets, then maybe there's actually the office hierarchy, right? Um, okay, so th- first we hear this echo, right? Lo tov, very much like we have Nitna Lechtov and Hanukkah, right? So the things that were not given to be written down, the Drashot are the oral term. Um, just as we find that the sages say, things that are oral you may not write down. And then he has this whole thing about how you can tell the difference between Jews and non-Jews based on if you know like the difference between the oral and the written law. I mean, okay, so it's that. I don't know exactly what to make of that. Um, and he goes into this verse from Hosea. 
Oh, I wrote Isaiah there, but it's not. It's Hosea. That's a mistake. Sorry. Um, right, then he, he sort of talks about the second thing, right? If you write down the things you're not supposed to write down, then you're not, like, you're ke'ilu azar, a stranger, right? That this is sort of like the, the fundamental character of the Jewishness of the Torah has to do with the separation between written and oral. Which, as we saw, maybe already sort of sounds like that from the Gemara. That's the base, the oral is the basis of the covenant. The existence of something oral is the basis of the covenant. Okay, um, so let's look, I guess, at the very end, just to sort of summarize his thinking. The underlying part, right? Because of this, the Torah, the oral Torah was given because God saw that Israel would be in exile and the um, nations would copy their own, the Torah in writing. Right? What's he referring to there, by the way? The Christian Bible? Right, possibly the Christian Bible, right? The nations appropriate the written Torah as their own. Before the Christian Bible, what might be written? They write it for their benefit. Right. They write, write, they write it for their own benefit. What is the first, by the way, copy or whatever of the written Torah? Oh, the Septuagint? The Septuagint, right, which the rabbis consider like this horrible occurrence, right? That the Torah is being well, translated. Well, the rabbis were kind of abducted and forced into Right, well, that was in the rabbinic story, yeah. But... But we wrote down the Torah. I mean, we had. We have it, but the idea, right? We have written Torah. So, it's, meaning it's not that the problem is writing, the problem is transferring it to people, but it, others, is, you mean? Right. Others outside. Probably. So, what he's about to say is that God saw that the nations would be able to copy, so in translation or otherwise, the written Torah, so we had to have something of our own. Exactly. Um, so, the oral Torah is the thing that they can't copy. Shebichtav, um, humafurash. Like. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong thing. Um, we find that the fundamental difference... Okay, fine. Um, and then he says this, this line the, at the very end of the underlying section, right. Every Jew has something of the aspect or the element of the oral Torah, mm-hmm. which is not given to be written down. Right? Like, the orality of the oral Torah is like fundamental to being Jewish. By the way, right, the Septuagint is a translation into... Greek, mm-hmm. right? Hanukkah is kind of like the holiday of the conflict with the Greeks. I just said that as before. <laughs> right, but like, I, let's sort of spell it out. What yeah. is that? I don't know. What does that mean? Right. Um, it's a twist, it's a twist yeah. right? But it's, there's something about, right? Hanukkah is the holiday of Torah Shabbat Pat. It's the holiday where this thing that, according to Rabbi Nachman and the Talmud, they were in fact worried about, in fact, occurred. Where the non Jewish people did appropriate the written Torah to some degree, and the thing that remained distinctly Jewish is the, hol- is the orality. Hmm. Okay. There's another thing about the oral, keeping it oral, it's in your head. And there's many times people that were book burning. And, you know, people outside. So, it's in your head, it's in your head. Right, you can't, you can't be taken away? Right. Um, right. Actually, right, so this is Raphodner. I think I'm not going to get there, but maybe we will at the end. He talked, the, the passage I gave you, which I gave you in all honesty because Rabbi Yaakov Elman had already translated it. Um, <laughs> He does talk about this thing about what about the nature of Hanukkah and the, the specific relationship with the Greeks is what generates Torah Shabbat Pat. But we'll, we'll get there. Um, we'll get there at the very end, I think. Maybe we will get there. So let's look at source number three. 
like faster than I might have imagined. So, post number three, which is on the back, the second page, basically. Um, okay. So this is talking about our first Gemara that we came to, right? The um, the the Hanukkah versus Purim Gemara. Mm-hmm. It's gonna t- it's going to talk about that at least to some degree. Um, okay. There's another Gemara, which is about to reference. We'll see if anybody knows it. Um, so the name Esther, right? The miracle of Esther is hinted at in what is written, Vanochi Haster Astir. I will hide. Does anyone know what this is a reference to? Is this when Moshe is on the mountain and no? So first of all, so let's look at it. Deuteronomy 31. Pass in front of him. So that's a no, but yes. So I don't think that the word Nistar is actually used there. Deuteronomy 31 is on page something. On page 444. Right. This is in the toe. It's not in the toe. Is it? Uh, God says to Moses, you are soon to lie with your fathers. These people will go astray. My anger will flare up against them. Right? Um, they will say, surely it is because God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Vanochi, I, God, haster astir panai vayomahu. I will hide my face on that day. Al Because they have turned to other gods, so I will sort of hide away from them. Even if it causes them to say that God is not with them. Right? Um, this is the source of the the it's concept that people talk about Hester Panim. It's also in 17, where it starts Right. Um, right, so why are we quoting the second one? Yeah, Because we're referring to another Gemara, which I didn't bring you, right? There's a Gemara in Chulin, that, um, which actually is cited, I put the citation in English for future reference. Um, there's a Gemara in Chulin that says, it wants to find, I mean, it's a very interesting question why they ask this, Esther mina Torah minayin. How do you know that Esther is referenced in the Torah? And they cite this verse. So that's why you want Haster, Aster, because it's the same letters mm-hmm. as Esther. Okay, there's another interesting one, by the way, that I don't recall. Mordechai in the Torah that's related to some passage about Mardur, like Mur, Mur, I believe. Um, Haman in the Torah, because in Genesis. Not, never mind. Well, what? I was going to say the man that Oh, so it's not Haman, Hamin Ha'etz, right? Mm. Did you eat from the tree mm. in Genesis 3? Oh, the snake. Right, oh, Haman oh. is like the snake, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did he? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. the original, one of yeah. the earlier ones. Yeah. Yes. Enemy of God, the snake. Right. Right. So that's, right, the, meaning it's, it's in the Gemara in its own way, in its own way of saying that kind of idea. Um, that like Haman is connected to this original sin in some way. There are many sh- shades of that. So the, the Esther connection is Hanochi Esther Esther, this pasuk. So, right, um, what Ratzaduk is about to say, which a lot of, sort of, in some ways, almost like a simple reading of that Gemara, that Esther is somehow very connected to the idea of Hester Panim, of hiddenness mm-hmm. of God's face, right? Because, right, God's voice, God's voice and God's name don't appear in the book of Esther, many things like that. Um, so he says, right, Esther um, is re- referenced in this verse. And the miracle itself was hidden. For in the exodus from Egypt, it was obvious to everyone that this was a completely supernatural occurrence. Right? Um, 
So he, I love his phrasing. Unlike the Purim miracle, it was like folded up in nature a little bit. A little bit. Right? A um, that's why it's so interesting what he says a little bit. First of all, I think this like idea of being folded up in nature is really interesting. Like You have to sort of open it to see it. Um, or or um, Kupal, yeah, I think that that's how I would read it. Um, but also a little bit, right? And that's why it's, she's called Esther. Right, because her, other, her real name was Hadassah? Right, her name is Hadassah. Right, so this answers sort of two questions. Esther yeah. means Torah. First of all, do we have any references to Esther? But second of all, why is her name Esther? Mm. You don't want to say because, like, Ishtar is a Persian goddess, right? That's not a good answer um, for the Talmud. So we have a different answer. As is our custom. So... Now he gets back to our Gemara, our first Gemara, source number one, in Yoma. Purim v'chanaka sof kol hanisim. Purim and Hanukkah are the end of all the miracles. De'ita, as we have in this Gemara, Esther is the end of all the miracles, and then they say, wait, what about Hanukkah? Hanukkah! Um, Hanukkah haya achar kach. Right? He says, he's explaining the question of the Gemara. What do you mean, what about Hanukkah? Because Hanukkah happened chronologically afterwards. Right? And we light candles, and we make a bracha v'tzivanu. Right, so why, why is he adding that? Why is he saying that that's why you're asking about Hanukkah? Because we light candles and make a bracha? What's the source of that? What well, just why does he care? Meaning, why doesn't he just say Hanukkah happens afterwards and it was a miracle? Because Esther is supposed to be the end of the miracle, so then... Right, so, I, right, so the, the, the basic mm-hmm. sense of the Gemara is Esther is supposed to be the end of the miracle. What about Hanukkah? Hanukkah is also a miracle. Ergo, Esther is not the end of the miracle, right. right? He asks this little thing. I, my guess is because he doesn't want to say that there are never any more miracles at all, mm-hmm. right? There may be even more hidden miracles, but mm-hmm. Hanukkah is like the last sanctioned miracle. Mm-hmm. It's codified in some way, right? We've included in our religious life in this way, right? We say a bracha, like, sort of, Mm-hmm. means that it's like it's serious, right? Even though, I mean, this is a big question. How can you say God commanded us to light Hanukkah candles when, like, it's not in the Torah? But, okay. So that's just sort of like an interesting, an interesting thing, right? So he says, Mishani Nina So he's just sort of, he's going through what you call the Shak Levitaria, like the back and forth of the Gemara. Vahainu, um, what does that mean? Shebanes Esther, the miracle of Esther, even though it was somewhat folded into the nature, nevertheless, everyone saw the basic occurrence of the miracle was from God, which is a perhaps non-obvious, shall we say, assertion, right? It's not obvious that, like, when you look at Esther, you say, oh, yeah, it's obviously miraculous. Even if it's, like, a hidden miracle, it's still a miracle. But then he's going to explain why. Because who would think that, like, why would a king think to marry a woman of unknown provenance, um, that's like against nature, which actually is true. The Persian, according to like what the information we have about Persian kings, they married women from like seven specific families or something like that. Um, and specifically, when they say in the Gemara that Esther was green, what is that? First of all, it doesn't really mean green. It probably means like yellowish or sickly looking. She oh, she had olive uh, skin. Uh, well, she was I don't think so. Well. I think what? Right, because she's like a hadas. A hadas. Yeah. So, so, right, but that's oh, not. I don't think that's what it means here. Oh. It means that she looked. I mean, I think what the I think what the point of a of a type of midrash like that is that is exactly what he's saying is to show that this is not a natural occurrence. Uh, I'll just give a little gloss. Girl, girl from an unknown family, full of love with her. Right, right. In terms of like the nature of Yarok, 
in in the parlance of the rabbis, it seems to me like it's it's generally refers to the like the yellow green family. Mm-hmm. Um, like the rabbis refer to like a a yarok discharge, for mm-hmm. example, which probably doesn't mean green. It probably means mm-hmm. yellowish, yeah. right? Yeah. One would hope, right? It's not like green like the grass, right? Yeah. That's that's not what it is. Right. It's like this family of colors, and in general, this is like one of my little things. So I like to stick it in wherever I can, which is here. <laughs> um, in general, right? Like the sort of the diversity of color mm. words mm. was much. The further back in history you go, the less oh, diversity of color words there is. It's cross-cultural. And if if you think about even some of it, they had fewer colors, and certain certain colors were associated only with one thing. Like a good example outside of the Torah thing is is turquoise, right? Mm -hmm. Turquoise was not like a color that you would see in a lot of places necessarily. It was a particular object, right? right? It was it's a stone. Like it would have that color, but you don't think of it as a color family. You think of it as color. Apparently, in general, the first color to appear is in like you know old text is red because like blood and whatever right. and then you get kind of green and then you get blue as much later and white is actually like snow. right right black and white are the first right yeah. sort of like light and dark is the most right. obvious um anyways that's an aside but an interesting one and it's always it, i find like it changes right for example people always say what about chela chela is light blue but it's not chela is a particular dye on a particular so what material is this? so what are we talking about when we say she's so I, that's what I'm saying. I think it means she's sort of like sickly looking, like what we would call like yellow one, not like mm-hmm. sallow. Okay. Sallow. sallow, yeah. Like maybe right. like a little green, but not 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 actually green like hadas in not that like shirt. Not like my shirt. Maybe my shirt. Not like no no more yellow. <laughs> more yellow even like the little pills on my shirt, <laughs> which you can't see, but I can. Um, yeah. So anyway, that 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 aside. <clears throat> So we say, and then Esther, right, he's saying, like, listen, it's improbable. The whole story of Esther, like, all of these things happened that, like, really shouldn't have happened, right? But, um, so that, that makes it sort of clear that God is doing this. And then also that, like, what, you know, even the way it starts to begin with, and he gets rid of Vashti, like, what? Especially maybe he has in mind that Vashti is, like, the herself of royal blood, so, like, how can Ahasuerus kind of do that? That doesn't make sense. Um... This is what he means. It was a little bit folded into nature. Right? Because actually, the actual salvation comes from a completely believable personal relationship between Esther and Ahasuerus. Right? Like, once you get to that point, all the things that led you to that point seem very, like, improbable. But once you get to that point, it happens in a sort of normal-ish way. Um... And this is the, the hint, Anochi Asterastir. Nevertheless, This is, I mean, this is sort of a not, like I would say, non-obvious, a non-obvious reading of Esther, right? That like it's in some ways an explicit miracle or an obvious miracle, even though it's hidden also. That's what they say in the Gemara, Ematai Ra'u Kol which is from a verse from what we have in um, Kabbalah Shabbat. When did all the edges of the earth see our salvation? in the time of Mordechai and Esther, right? One meaning of that drasha might just be like, because the Jews were spread out over the whole world at the time, so that's when the salvation was in all the worlds, but they seem to be seeing that it's something that was obviously divine intervention. Um, now I'm going to start to underline things. That's why they say Esther is given to be written down. Right, this is getting to this third possibility that there's something inherent. Right, Esther is 
a written type of miracle, and Hanukkah is going to be an oral type of miracle. Right? Because um, Esther is to- like the, t- of the aspect of Torah Shabbat which is explicit that it comes from God. Kimo, as they say, Shemitam Zenim Shal Lamatar. Right, the uh, or written Torah is like rain, which is obviously comes from God. Then he goes into this cabalistic out um, sort of. I don't know. For him, it's not a digression, but for us, it is. Um, right, Esther is the end of Nisim because Esther is sort of the the aspect of Malchut, which is the lowest Sirah, It says Malchut. So that's sort of like the end of this type of revelation. Um, let's look at this verse, by the way. Yeah, um, which he's referring to. Let's look, we'll, we'll be ready for it when it comes up in the next section. It should be where you just were, Deuteronomy 32. Two on page four four five. If you still have your book open, the verse here says, right, this beginning of the Hazinu poem. Right, may my discourse come down as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Right, so lekach there translating as discourse. Right. As in many cases, you have a poetic thing, right? My lekach will come down like matar, my imra will come down like tal, right? So it's like the, a word for the thing that God is giving and then a word for what it's like that is what, right? So then there's always a question of like, are these basically the same? Is this just a poem, just a poem? Or are, is there some important difference between the two halves? Um, so he's going to side with the important difference side, as we will see if we pick up where it starts to be underlined again. Nesachanaka is not like what we just said about Pesa, about Purim, that it's fundamentally an evident miracle. Nesachanaka, which is the nature of the oral law, which we have said is analogized to the dew, and then he quotes the second half of this pasuk, right? So you see he's clearly reading this as the first half, Ya'arof Kamatar Likhi, is the, Torah, the written Torah comes down like rain. The oral Torah comes down or out like do in the sense that it's not obvious where it comes from. Mm-hmm. He seems to be, he's going to say that it in fact does come from heaven, which might not be the way we understand it scientifically, but you know, nobody sees it get there, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's like the do. For the descent of dew from above is not perceptible. Rather, they understand when they see the earth wet, the dew has fallen. So the oral Torah appears to the sage, so this is very interesting, mm-hmm. right? So first of all, what's the metaphor, what's the analogy of Hanukkah? It's not obvious. Right, it's not obvious. Right? If, you're, if you're carrying on the, med- the, the miracle thing, the miracle of Hanukkah is going to be less obvious than the miracle of Purim. Does that sound correct? From God. Yeah, but there was a, a big battle. Right. Why is that so let's talk about this for a second. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talk about it as a very obvious miracle. That's how it's But so that's described. not what the Gemara calls the miracle, right? The, mir- the Gemara the says the miracle of the Shem of the Well, that was an obvious miracle. Okay. So let's systematize for a second. Right? Purim is... Um, Hidden-ish, but clearly divine miracle, right? Well, not clearly. Well, according to according to to this interpretation, right, and that's related to the written Torah. It's like rain 
obviously from above. Okay. Hanukkah. Oops, sorry. He says, right, it's it's gonna be really hidden. That's that's what we are gonna have to assume. Right? It's like dew. Oh, it's like gonna be like the oral Torah. And it's gonna be like dew. Okay, so Yeah, do appear to a yeah, it doesn't you don't see do fall from heaven. It doesn't right. fall. It doesn't. 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 It so how is that not Right. Is this really true? This premise, fine. We have the Gemara that says this is the Torah, this is the Oral Torah. But is this premise really true that Purim is more hidden than Hanukkah? What, right. So you're saying, what, well, what's the miracle of Hanukkah? Oh, no. Not yet. Yes. If it's the military, it's hidden. Right. So if you say it's just the war, this kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now if you say it's the oil, not so it, makes, it doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah. Right. Oh, Because that's exactly the kind of thing where you could not attribute it. Right. First of all, before we get there, he's going to say, right, what about Hanukkah is like the oral Torah? How is the oral Torah like do? Um, Shein nikar yiridah hatalmi lamala, rak mivinim kishiroim haaretz lacha lacha. Sorry, yiridah hatal. Right, you only find out after the fact right, that it, it happened. What's that like? V'chaim to Rashi be'alpan. This is like the oral Torah. Nidmela chachamim shehem mechadshim. It seems to the sages that they are the initiators, the creators, the mechadshim, right? They have the chidushim. I was trying to figure out how to translate that. Somebody else the, inventors. the inventors, yeah. It seems like they're the inventors, right? Um, innovators. 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 innovators is good. Thank you. Yes. Innovating. Yeah, that's <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, right? It seems like they're the innovators, but really it's like the dew. It came from above. So now maybe you even say our understanding of the dew is very fruitful here, right? If we understand that the dew does not actually fall from the sky, it's influenced by whatever celestial meteorological. Right, but it does in fact come from around, right? Then if that's like the oral Torah, that's very interesting. It comes from God, ultimately. It comes from the Bethlehem. Right, my words that I place in your mouth. Um, Right, so that's his first thing. Right, Hanukkah is also hidden like this. It looks like it came from here because it's a war, but in truth, it was from God, who gave their hearts courage and strength to stand few in number against a multitude. Right, not who made things. Right, it's not like God who miraculously arranged the battles. It's God who gave them the strength to do it. 
Right? It's a little it's different. Wonderful. Right. It is different. Um, nevertheless, there was some awakening from their side. He calls it Hitor root. This is a general sort of Hasidic, Kabbalistic concept that I can't speak as an expert about, to say the least. There's this idea of Hitor Ruta Dilatata, that there's some, mm-hmm. some sort of awakening from below that has, mm-hmm. that has parallels above. There's sort of different models. Sometimes mm-hmm. some things start from above and are, are picked up below. Some things start below and are picked up above. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, some other sources talk about even Purim as being starting from below and picking oh. up above, um, based on other Gemara's, whatever. Leave that aside. But here he's certainly saying that about Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah began on their mm-hmm. side, then God gave them strength, right? But even when it was picked up from above, it was in this very subtle way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he handed the warriors in the week. Um, nevertheless, the miracle was not explicit. Okay, what about this oil question? Here's, he's going to say something that I overheard. Lydia saying before, which is very interesting. And particularly, right, Ubifrat Nesa Shemen, in particular, the, the miracle of the oil, Shehayanistar, was hidden. Bivadai, it was certainly hidden, right? So he's using this language, it was definitely hidden, because it's not at all obvious to us why that was definitely hidden, right? Um, okay. Baloni Tali Katev, it was not given to be written down. Shehi. That is the Torah Shabalpeh. That is, in fact, the nature of the miracle. I think that he's saying star, meaning it was physically hidden, right? It was yeah. hidden away in the confines of the temple. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's what she was saying. That's what she was saying. That's the way. That's the way the best way to understand it. How many people this. actually saw it happening? Right. Yeah, but it was still against nature. So right. Right. So this is, I mean, I think that, exactly. Right. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Unless he's trying to say something about miracles. He's saying something about miracles. He's also saying something about the Torah, right? There's something here, the miracle of the oil is like the miracle of the Torah, or like the oral Torah, right? That like, that's sort of going to be the... How? How. Well, I don't know. You tell me, and then I'll say it. Right. <laughs> the miracle, first of all, in or inside of Nachman, both of them are things where you don't know where they come from, maybe you would say, right? Mm-hmm. You feel like you're Mechadej, and only afterwards it becomes clear that it was from God, right? Maybe you feel like you're lighting the fire, and it becomes clear afterwards that it was, in fact, a different kind of fire because uh-huh. the oil is still there. Uh-huh. Um, because, maybe. you know, the oil miracle yeah. is not against nature. How come not? Not quite. Well, it's uh, using no, nature. No, because let's say... The vehicle would have been that uh, vinegar would have burned, uh-huh. or water would have burned. Okay, so you could say this is a totally uh, unknown phenomenon. Okay. And but in that in our tradition, we should be as amazed that oil is burning as if water uh, vinegar would be burning. We should be. Supposedly, no, no, no we should be. No, there is this idea that we should be. We should be as amazed because we be, We should be in constant amazement because but, but that's the nature of being a religious person, being amazed. No, no, okay, no, no, no. I understand, but, 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 but it's not against nature. If you think about it, it is the, num- the, the increase, the sudden appearance of something from nothing. No, no, I didn't agree. With you. Right. I mean, that's the it's question of whether yes, there is. Well, it's not Yeshmei. It's not Yeshmei because it requires no, some amount of oil. It grew on its own. When, when, um, Does that mean that it grew or it just was no. not consumed? They I don't know. Okay. I thought they just got water. I would assume it was not consumed. What do you have today on one candle versus an old candle? Who's talking? An old candle. We're about to see that. The rocks are out of swallow rain. Exactly. What happened with the oil? Maybe I 
just don't, don't know. Yeah, I don't know. If the, the oil lasted for eight days. What does that mean? I, I always know. understood that to mean you either you pour it into the things, but then the jug is still full. Or you pour it into the things, you light the things, and the oil is still there. Well, it is true that it's not that I apologize. I'm Sephardi, and I come from a very ancient Judaism. For example, I was explaining to you about oil. So in my family, for example, they're so ancient that they don't even have candles. They have not even two lights. On Shabbat, they have one light. And not even, no, just to tell you. So, so my, every week my mom would put the same amount of, you know, with the cotton that she would create. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. all on the saucer, nothing yeah. uh, grandiose, like in, and not even in the kitchen, you know. Right. But each week it would be a diff- the same amount of oil. Each week it would be a diff- the, the oil would be finishing at a different time. Sometimes on Mose Shabbat, sometimes on Yom Shabbat. Why? Depending on the temperature of the room, depending how open we open the window, depending of the, depending about if there is more oxygen or less oxygen, more guests in the in the room or less guests in the room. My father is like variables. There are more variables. Today the old trashing. Yes. There's an old stretching phenomenon. So you're saying that, like, in fact, lasting for eight days is sort of within real, like, no, yeah, nature. Not, not, not against, it's maybe supernatural, right. but not against nature. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like an extreme it's version of a normal thing yeah, that could happen. Right. Not nature, right. but against nature. I it's more like yeah. the Alicia story. You remember when that yeah. woman was caught in the And yeah. she said, yeah. put a little oil in some of all her pots are full of oil. That's yeah. what I always thought it was. No, no, even Elisha is not ex nihilo because if it, 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 no, it's exactly that. You ex nihilo is actually the creation of Hashem when He created the world. Mm-hmm. Ex nihilo, from nothing. Right. But actually, Elisha said, ask vessels from your shenim, from your neighbors, and from the little bit, um, uh, Amora, uh, from the little bit of oil, He was able to extend and extend and extend. So he didn't do an ex nihilo miracle and It's very different. Right. Yeah, but it's also not from nothing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But you know, my father always lit um, Hanukkah candles with oil, and so do I. Right. And the fact is that it they always last for minimum half hour, maybe 45 minutes, an hour. And the next day, I don't have to add a lot of oil. So it's still left. It's still because it's left. soaked into the wicks. I, I do yeah. Right, it's so, but but it didn't soak enough that it, it used up all of the oil. Right. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. I think it depends. Even it goes down. So many right. so it depends on the type yeah, of so wind 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 or peanut oil, or wind 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 so, I want to turn to our last, or perhaps next to last, or almost next to last, I don't know, we'll see. The, the title of this, this class was originally, it's forbidden to light with a, an old candle. So where does that come from? So it comes from source number six. Where does that, oh, that's a rhetorical trick question, right? It comes from source number six, something called Masechet Sofrim. Does anyone know what that is? Masechet Sofrim is one of what's called the Masechtot Kitanot, the minor tractates. Um, they're not really part of the Mishnah, but some of them are very old material. So it is true that we do not have <coughs> a tractate Hanukkah, but we do have some laws of Hanukkah written up in Masechet Sofrim, and this is one of them. They said, 
right, on the 25th of Kislev, right, no, they don't say, like, on Hanukkah, Hanukkah, meaning, like, it's not obvious, like, is Hanukkah a thing that everybody knows about, or it's, like, this observance that we do on the 25th of Kislev, we do this thing, right, um, you light the Hanukkah candle, or lamp is really better, right, it's not, we always call it a Hanukkah candle, but it's not, and we'll see why it matters, right, um, and it's forbidden to light with an old, I, a used lamp. They weren't that disposable. They weren't disposable, but we'll see. Right, you can kind of smelt it, or, or like really, libun is like um, whitening, uh, like getting metal to be white hot. Oh. Right, you like. You kind of fire it in yeah, some way, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then it's mutar. And then you say you don't pick it up from where it is. So the concern here seems to be, in other places we have it regarding the shot of candles, that a ner yashan is mukta, right? You can't move a ner yashan, not even if it wasn't used in Arab Shabbat. So it's not mukta in the same way because it's ma'us. Mukta is called mukta ma'at mi'us, right? It's gross. So you can't use these like yucky lamp. They're talking about a lamp. Huh? And the oh, lamp yeah. that has like sort of like the residue of random burned oil is not appropriate for Hanukkah. Is what they're saying. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. then so it's I actually very interesting. That. It would be bizui mitzvah. Basically, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so we'll see when we get to Bnei Sassar what he says about that. There is a tradition to do this, but people limit it to the to ceramic lamps. I don't know, maybe they huh? get more residue or something. So something I didn't I'm bring you, but people... Unglazed. No, I'm saying it doesn't have to be unglazed, but if it is unglazed, then the old used ones gets more gross. So, for example, oh, okay. some of the people who, one of the reasons people have metal Hanukkiyot, oh. right, it started, started with another source that we don't have here talks about the Maharami Rotenberg doing this. He would have metal, or they would talk about people who would have metal for Hanukkah because then it would be easy to clean. Hmm. Right. Oh, okay. Unglazed um, stuff is get, would get grubby. So, um, right, so the Hagahot Memoniyot is one of the, um, I guess he's a, an Ashkenazic Rishon. He wrote a commentary on the Rambam, and hence the name Hagahot Memoniyot. Um, but he was also a student of Maharam. Um, Maharami Rutenberg was sort of like the big, one of the big Ashkenazi guys, exactly. Um, so he wrote the following about this. Again, we have, we see this idea of like learning halacha from, or like learning something relevant to halacha from a poem. So Vihineha <laughs> Kalir, right? The Kalir, Rabbi Lazar Kalir, is one of the earlier Paitanim. So I think like Lake Onik, a very early Rishonic period, right? Um, a lot of our PU team and like the stuff on, on High Holidays is from the Kalir. Um, Yasad Gamke, he's he established it this way in the Krovetz Shalchanika. Krovetz is like a type of I think for the Amida, if I recall correctly, it's a very also very interesting etymology of what Krovitz, why it's called it's that. Right? Well, so, people, it's the folk yeah. etymology is an acronym. It probably actually is Krovot, Krovus, oh. right, and that the su and the su were actually sort of interchangeable. Um, anyway, so in the Krovitz for Hanukkah, he says. Uh, right? I will prefer not to light with a ner yashan. So this is his proof that in fact, right, not only is it in this obscure thing, Masechat Sofrim, which is not really a source of independent halacha, but even the Kalir says that like, this is, this is like, um, one of ours we wrote, I'm like blanking on the, which, um, Lita Negri, right, 
beginning with any of One of ours, Miran Shabbat, is like a run-through of the laws of Shabbat. So it sounds like this poem might be the same thing. Right? Like a run-through, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, so he says this is if that's what you do on Pesach. And also the Maharam used to not use an old lamp. Right, so this is sort of like this idea that this is out there. Now, is this the actual halacha? I don't think so. Um, partly because maybe our materials are not the same. Right, we're mm-hmm. using materials that are actually able, you're able to clean, and your old lefties use the old oil as well, um, as far as I know. So the Bnei Safar sort of jumps off of this. Bnei Safar is I forget his name, but he's best known as the author of a book called Aim Habanim Smecha. Oh, oh yeah. Um, which mm-hmm. people may have heard of. Somebody, if you, everybody said, oh, do you want to tell us what it is? No. There's um, a, a book about women who, um, uh, the laws after giving birth or oh, something. Oh, that is not what I'm thinking of. There may be oh. such a thing. Um, Moshiva, so it comes from the verse, Moshiva Kert Habayat Eon Smecha, yeah, right? Like God will make sort of the... Um, barren woman in Smecha. So he was a Hasidic rabbi, like in the 20th century. He was like sort of associated with Munkat, right? Like the very anti-Zionist school of Hasidim. He actually died in the Holocaust, but before he died in the Holocaust, um, he changed his mind on Zionism, shall we say? And he wrote this book called Eilavani Smecha, which is about how like the land of Israel, which was once barren, is now welcoming its children. Oh. Um, and it's like one of these books that like your Zionist rabbis, when you're here in Israel, always like, are like, read this book and you'll be converted. Um, yeah, it's, like, it's sort of like very big in like the B'nai Kiva type circles. Yeah. Um, so that's what it's about. But this is something unrelated. So he says the following. Lufiza, understand, with good reasoning, that which we teach in Masechet. So from Asur Lahadlik Benariashan. And he's going to have another Purim parallel here as well. Um, it's forbidden to light with an oil lamp. Behold, if the reason is just the degradation of the commandment, Bizui Mitzvah, that it's gross, then why should it apply only to Hanukkah? We light candles. We have mitzvot of candles or lamps or whatever, lighting fires on Shabbos, on Yom Tov. Why don't we find in any of those places that Asur Lahadlik Benariashan? Right? Can you answer the question? Okay. So he says, because of what we see from our rabbis regarding this law, he's gonna he's gonna answer that question in a circuitous route. Right? In order to understand his answer, let me tell you about a different rule. The rule is you can't read the Megillah Lima Freya. Lima Freya, I've translated here as retroactively, because that's what it usually means, but it means somehow refer like referring back. Reading the Megillah Lima Freya seems to refer to reading it out like you know, you start at the end, you read like chapter 9, then chapter 8, then chapter 7, or however you do it. You read it out of order in a non-chronological way. Why would you do that? Why would you do that is a great question. Um, that This is actually discussed in the uh, forthcoming Rabbi Silver McGill, um, <laughs> which I will plug. But um, right, why would you do that? Maybe because you're not thinking of it as a story, you're thinking of it as a ritual, like we have to read the Megillah. Right, so I'm gonna maybe I, you come into show late, yeah. you, you read with them, and then you go back and you read the first three chapters. Oh. Would I do that at Kriyatora? Right, exactly. But they are playing catch-up in Kriyatora. Right. Something like that. Right. So it's a different mitzvah. It's a different mitzvah. So he says, why can't you read the Megillah Lema Freya? Here's how we understand it. One who reads the Megillah sort of in the wrong order or something. He merely tells and reads a story that happened in the past. He does not understand that this miracle, that is the revelation of the light, right? A mirror, he's sort of associating miracles with light again, right? Which is gets back to our original thing of the why is the end of the miracle, the beginning of the day, okay? Um, 
this revelation of the light is revealed again every year, right? You can't read the Megillah. He's re- this is a metaphorical reading of the Halacha, basically, right? You can't read the Megillah as if it's only in the past. Okay? Therefore, reading the Megillah was established for the generations, that all the names and the lights that are hinted at it will be revealed again. So someone who does not understand that this does not believe, but simply reads in the past something that happens like a history book. The Megillah is not, shouldn't be just a history book. It should be something that you're reading because you feel like it has continuing impacts. It has the same kind of things keep happening. Right? Um, behold, this law pertains to the Megillah, which is written in a scroll. The activity of revealing the light of the miracle in the high heights is done by way of reading. Right? By Megillah you read. Right? The way that you show that the, the miracle of the Megillah is contemporary is by reading the story. Right. Right? How do you show that the miracle of Hanukkah is contemporary? By lighting the candles. But you can't light an old candle because it's not an old miracle. Right? The new miracle. Continuing miracle. Continuing. Yeah. And only that, you hope that this illumination, yes, illuminates the temple again, but it's going to eliminate your own temple, the temple of your heart, or the temple of your family as well. Mm. Right. No, I think that there, there's yeah. something there. Right? What does he mean when he says that the miracle is happening again? He obviously doesn't mean that like the Queen of Persia is like writing edicts against whatever. Yeah. So mm-hmm. God is intervening. Is an interventionist. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So the analogy is just that the mirror or the Megillah is analogous to like the menorah, basically. And right. The way that mm. the miracle is revealed in the Megillah, the miracle is mm. revealed in the Megillah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's great. Thank you for saying that. Because then if we pull it back, right, how did we get into this thing, Torah Shabbat Right? Mm-hmm. Um, which he's also not talking about that. Right? The Megillah is written down in a book so you read it. The Torah Shabal Pet of Hanukkah is somehow connected to the menorah, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be, right? Yeah. That the menorah is like the Torah Shabal Pet in mm-hmm. some way. So that's where I want to turn for a yeah, second. But, uh, Nehem, yeah. You cannot avoid but admit that for the, for the story of Purim, it's Ora Vesimcha. So it means that it's not just <coughs> merriment and the gaiety of a carnival. It's first the Ora, which means illumination you know, cerebrality, you know what I mean? Right. Or, I mean Light, right. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and, and also the fact that uh, that uh, you see more, a miracle is light, because hopefully you see more, and you see, and it takes away some doubt, and some self-doubt, that everybody would have, you know? So, uh, so that, that's, you know, and also the fact that it is, Simcha, Vika, so there is this notion of, of kavod, of, of, of decorum, right, honor of yeah. decorum that carnaval at the end of a carnaval becomes gross at the end. Oh, People yeah. are very drunk and, and the costume decomposes and nobody looks good at the end of carnaval. But there is, it ends with vicar, with a sense of, of majesty and, and, and classiness. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, right, the whole the question of the end, yeah, there's a lot to say about the end of the Megillah and what exactly is the nature of the celebration um, for that taste. So I wanted to just, I guess the last two things, which hopefully will take us to the end. Um, we're going to so go back in time again. the is like the what? I would say, right, I would say for a little pushing the B'nai test for a little further, the menorah is like the oral Torah. It's a scroll that sort of shows you the renewedness of the miracle of Purim is the written Torah. Mm-hmm. The menorah that shows you the renewedness of the oral Torah. And so that's I want to sort of... You have parallels there. Yeah. 
So I sort of want to push this, like, what does it mean for the oral Torah to be like, like the menorah, Wait, like the a little Torah? more. The scroll, like the reading, okay. right? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Um, and the reading is in fact the do, do this, right? do that. But to think of the old Torah as do, as opposed to Ren, is so incredible. Right. So right. So I guess okay. yeah. Let's 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 um, account for some of our metaphors. Right. We have oral Torah. It's like Hanukkah. It's like the dawn, right? The day dawn or day, right? It's like. Um, the dew. <coughs> the dew. Maybe it's like the menorah. Yeah. Right? Which, by the way, the menorah, what does it do, right? Well, a few things. First of all, there's more. There's always more there. Uh-huh. Right? There's more than you expect to there. It doesn't get used up in it gets way. Added to. How does it's it get sustainable. added to? It's, a, it's sustainable. Sustainable. Right. Good word. It's also Jew- something to do with being uniquely Jewish. It's self-sustaining almost. Right, it's uniquely Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about self-sustaining. It needs the Jews to, to like yeah. it. Yes, so, yeah, but, uh, that, but it's right. a grassroots. You know, right. it, it comes, it's a bottom-up almost. Mm. And you would think that it would have been a, a, a top-bottom. Top top but right. it's it Right. It's kind of right. And the same thing with the menorah, just as in some ways, like every day that you can get fire out of it that was, was extra, every day there's more light in the menorah, right? Most people right? You keep adding. Um, that, I'll say this just outside, I think it's a very interesting metaphor for if you want to think about this seriously in terms of oral Torah, because like there's a, there's a story in the death of Rabbi Eliezer in the Gemara. Um, Rabbi Eliezer is most famous, I would say, for the story of the Taner Shalachnai, right? The Avon Avachnai. He gets excommunicated because he refuses to agree with the other rabbis. He says, God agrees with me, so you guys can go shove it, um, and I'm going to bury you in the baby dress to boot, right? And they say, no, right? What happens at the end of that story? Well, there are many things that happen at the end of the story. Rabbi Eliezer gets excommunicated, right? It's not like the whatever, there are many things to say about that story, not our topic, right? Rabbi Eliezer gets excommunicated. They say everything that Rabbi Eliezer ever said was pure is not pure, they burn it all. He's really sad, right? He's so upset that he, in fact, like, causes many calamities to occur okay. through his, like, super spiritual yeah. powers. Um, Definitely. Yes, right. So there is a parallel story in the Bobli, or in the Bobli is explicitly literary the parallel. There's a story of Rabbi Eliezer's death. Rabbi Eliezer is in... Um, He's excommunicated, and the rabbis here, he's dying, so they come to visit him. Um, and wow. he says... Too little, too late, right? Exactly. He says, what brings you here, guys? And they say, oh, we just wanted to learn the Torah. And he says, oh, yeah, where have you been? Right? And then he launches into this... I mean, that's, that's a set, whatever, that's like a little bit of my spin, but that's basically what it is. Um, and he launches into this whole thing about how, like, I know so much that nobody is ever going to learn from me anymore, no one ever asked me about this, 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 this thing, right? Like, I learned from my rabbis, my rabbis, like, oh, like I learned, I only took from my rabbis, like, a little vial from the sea, or like a dog lapping from the sea, and my students only took from me, like, a little mess makeup brush and a tin of makeup. Uh-huh. Um, so that metaphor of Torah, right, the, or he's talking about the oral Torah in terms of transmission, right? You can never transmit more than you have, and there are other texts about this, right? Uh-huh. You never transmit more than you have, you always transmit less than you have, uh-huh. right? Arguably, 
from the Lubashmaki story and elsewhere, the, the argument is the opposite. You can somewhat, in some ways, the oral Torah can increase. It doesn't only decrease and decrease and decrease. Um, so that's sort of another image that I get from this like oral Torah menorah thing. But um, that's, I just wanted to put that out there. Al-Regalachat. So I wanted to, to end with this Bamidbar Rabbah, I think, and then maybe we'll see if we have time for a quick um, so I, I, I came across this source, thanks to this source, rather, thanks to Rabbi Aviva Richman. Source number nine, yes, next to almost next to the last page. Okay, the Halotcha, right? This is about the menorah in the temple. It's not about the Chanukiah, but let's see if we can maybe make something interesting of it. Um, when you set up the lamps, the Halotcha Tanirot, right? This is what the set scripture says. Gam Choshech. Right, even the darkness is not too dark for thee, God, but the night shineth as the day. The dark is even as light. But to us, he says, when you set up the lamps, what's the what's the question? Hmm. What's the point of lighting for God if God right. is light? Right. God makes light. God is light. Yeah. God can see in the dark. What is the point of lighting our little candle and I wait for God? As we can. Right. Right. Exactly. Right, because we can't see anything, but then, okay. So, they give him a shawl. It's a, what is the, the parable or an analogy to a king who has a friend? The king says to him, hey, I'm coming to you for dinner tonight, so go get ready. His friend went and prepared a layman's couch, says, shall head yot, right? It's sort of a, you could say it as layman's, you could rate it as like ordinary, ordinary might be a characterization, right? An ordinary couch. Yeah. Um, ordinary, like, you know, he set up his room, but he lives in, like, you know, his, like, his kitchen is made of Ikea and whatever. Um, and <coughs> the king came with his butlers all around him, and he has this golden cow with a lever in front of him. By the way, this, this focus on the lights here is not just because they're looking for the metaphor. I was just listening to some, like, one of these, like, science-y podcasts about it, but, like, He's it what? used to be, these science-y podcasts they sing, it used oh. to be extremely expensive to make light at night. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, that was not the kind of thing that an ordinary person would have. Like, yes, it's not candles. just that the candelabra is gold, is gold. it's the that he can afford expensive. enough candles to, like, lead the way in front of him and put in someone else's house, right? Um, so, okay. So the king comes with all, like, his entourage and his big candle, and the friend sees it, and he's kind of embarrassed. He's like, what, what is my, like, you know, my food is nothing compared to your food, so he puts it away. And the king says, what do you mean? Didn't I tell you I was coming for dinner? Why didn't you prepare anything? The friend says, like, oh, well, I did, but, like, it didn't seem like, you know, it was even yeah. worth, it was worth serving because you came with better stuff. Um, so the king says, no, um, you know, like, I will not, but the way they say, I will nullify everything I have brought, and because of your love, I will use only yours. Wow. Right? Um, so the Blessed Holy One, Hashbarahu, is all light, as it says, and the light, Nahor Sharia, which is from Daniel. Um, and he says to Israel, still light for me a menorah. What is written there? Let me make them, let them make me a sanctuary that will dwell a suli mikdash, and you shall make a menorah. Once they made them, the Shekhinah came. Read Vasuli mikdash v'shachanti v'tocham, make a menorah. He's saying these things are um, somehow related. They, the, the, our menorah is what causes God to want to visit, right? God is the king, right? Like, God comes to visit to see our menorah, not to bring his own. Ah, oh, that's good. Uh, 
And then he has this last thing, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Um, anyways. Fine, let's, let's, let's leave the end aside. So let's say we take this back into our context, right? This is not a Hanukkah context, and this is not an oracle Torah context, but let's say we take it back into our context. What would happen? To, to me, this, this thing showed me that, that uh, really Hanukkah was also a concealed miracle because the, it was a light inside the light, a light of a man-made light inside the flooding light of Hashem. And it's about believing that it can make our little light policing capacity can still make a difference. And uh, Yes, it, 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 I mean, it means that, yes, uh, the, the miracle of Hanukkah can be seen as, as, as uh, concealed inside this uh, chamber, which was in any case flooded by the light of Hashem. Uh, and as a result, uh, this comparison, saying uh, Purim is concealed and Hanukkah is radiant outside, for me now, at the end of this class, I must say that I I, the contrast between Purim and Hanukkah is not as glaring anymore. Mm-hmm. But maybe it was your, it was your yeah, purpose, no, I think that's or good. maybe it was not the purpose of the class, but um, mm-hmm. I, I, whatever. I, I'm I, happy I, for people to take what works for them. Yeah, but, um, yeah. No, I think the right, if you, I think this is, I don't know, the reason I brought this source, I think there's a, it could go, you can say a lot of things. But the reason I brought this source, if you want to go down this path, right, the dawn, the day, the dew, the menorah, the, like on the one hand, the image of the menorah increasing and like, isn't this so amazing, the power of the Torah Shabbat path, it's also important to sort of keep it in perspective, right, like, well, increasing what, compared to what? Mm-hmm. And then to say like, right, if you take it one step further in this metaphor, right, like that's the point. The point is that like, yeah, it's true, like, God doesn't need, like, your random chidushim about whatever Gemara you're learning. <laughs> like, it's not, it's, it's not actually such, like, you know, like what Rabbi Nachman says, right? It seems like, oh, you innovated this <clears> thing, <throat> but, like, really? <clears throat> but at the same time, that's the point because of the relationship, right? The relationship is what makes that, what you offer me, important. So God's love is what the key is, that he loves us, so, it's, so he, he's willing to use what we have for him, or take what we have. Yeah, and I think something like that. He doesn't need, quote need. But he delights, it's out of he delights love. in it's that. It's out of love, out of, not out of need. Now, we're right. not doing anything for God to be on call, but mm-hmm. he loves us. It's about the relationship. And he loves it. Not only right. loves us, well, but he, he loves, loves what it. we do with it. Right. No, <laughs> he loves what we bring to him. To him. Right. So, so it does make a difference. It's not detached. Uh, it's not that we cannot make a difference we are movable by his love, but we, so to speak, we can also affect God. Also, uh, it sounds very uh, arrogant, but on the other hand, it, 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 for me, this delivers me with despair, with existential despair. If I can understand that, uh, that God expects that dinner of mine that I could prepare in this little fellowship, and he, he would, uh, even though he has all the light, he wants my light as well. And, and uh, I don't need to become Christian. I don't need to convert to Christianity. Yes, Owing to that kind of hydrachim, because I, I can affect, uh, I don't mean to be uh, too dramatic, but... Uh, 
for, for those, I, mean, I, I would think that I have plenty of friends who want to, do want to convert, who have converted to Christianity. Oh, yeah. No, yes, I do. But, and and, and, and I see my friends, but I would, this kind of be rushing that I would read them, read to them. Um, yeah, so I wanted to take it like, I guess once we have a little time. So this this passage from Hunter, um, where he goes back to this Hanukkah connection, he talks about, right, we, we sort of dropped a pin at the beginning, right, the time of the translation of the written Torah is also the time where the oral Torah becomes key, right, he has a little bit of a different view as to like, what about the time of Hanukkah makes the oral Torah key? So what he says, big adult. I guess we can read it. Somebody want to read in English? In English, it's not a bad thing. Yossi ben Yozer yeah. and Yossi ben Yochanan lived in the time of the Greek War where the first recorded sages to disagree in regard, in regard to the laws of the Torah. That is, because the Greek decrees forbidding Torah study caused the eyes of the sages to be darkened. This darkening slash causing to forget was the cause of the first recorded dispute within the Sanhedrin that sat in the chamber of mm. the stones that the increase of viewpoints and the consequent differences of opinion in Torah discourse, literally the war of Torah, to the present day proceeds directly from that darkening of the eyes of Israel by means of the enforced forgetting of the Torah by the great decrees. So this is like, a, a, again, like a little bit of a different perspective, right? Like, right, all of these machlokot that we have, on the one hand, and when you talk about the power of Torah, that's exactly what you're talking about, that the rabbis can disagree and they can have different creative interpretations, they can put things together, they can harmonize, they can take apart. On the other hand, like, from a pure sort of Masoretic perspective, mm-hmm. like, all of those things are indicative of a loss, ah. supposedly, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, it had an impact, yeah. that there was actually something that happened historically. Yeah. And, yeah. and there, was a, there was an impact in terms of Right. So he's saying, right, that on the one hand, right, like the Greek cause of this loss seems like a bad thing. On the other hand, it ends up generating mm-hmm. a gain. The gain being the multiplicity of Torah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to keep reading? But at times, the nullification of Torah is its continued existence. Menachot 99b. The breaking of the tablets containing the Decalogue constituted its preservation. When Moshe shattered the, fir- shattered the first tablets, which eventually led to a reconciliation with God. Thus the sages say that had the first tablets not been shattered, Israel would not have gotten would have would not have forgotten the Torah. We learn therefore that the breaking of the tablets led to the forced forced forgetting of the Torah, and from this we learn a wonderful insight. The Torah can increase by means of forgetting of the Torah. Oh boy. <laughs> See what the sages have taught us. Three hundred laws were for, for forgotten during the period of mourning for Moshe. But Othniel ben Kenaz restored them by means of his analytic ability. Thus the words of Torah that were restored by analytic ability are identical to the laws that were multiplied only because of that forgetting of the Torah. Not only that, but the very increase of disputes in law occurred because of that forgetting. But despite this, the sages tell us that even though these declare an object ritually clean and others declare it ritually fit, these declare it invalid and others declare it valid, these declare something permitted and others declare forbidden, etc. Both are words of the living God. The upshot is that the increase in views and approaches constitute an enlargement of Torah and its glorification that proceeds precisely from the beginning of Torah. Okay. That's so, very heartening. Right, and the, the last part is a reference to a Gemara in Chagiga that says, right, how you, let's say you say, it's a dress on the Pasuk in Kohelet, right, the words of the sages are like uh, cattle prods, they're like firmly planted nails, 
um, they say kamasmer rod, but nituim, right? They're the, a masmer gets smaller and smaller the more you hit it in, but nituim means that they actually can still right grow. Masmerot nituim. It's the pasuk from Kohelet. Nitnumero echad, right? Um, and then it says maybe you'll think so many different people. But oh, says about Alei Asufot. They sit sort of like the different rabbis have their different opinions. There are different groups. They some people say yes, some people say no, and basically any kind of question. Maybe you'll say Heich Ani Lema Torah. How can I learn Torah? Rather, make your ear like a sort of horn to accept the words of both the people who say yes and the people who say no, because they're all come from God. Right, so this is like a very, very interesting classic Gemara, right? But he's sort of saying, right, that that so just the way that that Gemara celebrates multiplicity in some way, that in fact we should celebrate, it. even if the source of it is forgetting. In fact, the multiplicity is a creation of more. Um, is it a, a reaction to having forgotten? Are people um, trying to remember by coming up with their own ideas? No. Um, so his thing about the Odniel ben Knaas suggests that, yeah, you can generate the same outcomes through the rules of the discourse. Uh, but you don't always, right? Sometimes Odniel ben Knaas can just restore them, but sometimes one person restores it one way and one person restores it another way. They do. <laughs> yes. um, but you know, for somebody who's not a believer, or like somebody, I mean, I have a brother, he tells me, oh, everything in the Torah is a loophole. You know, everything is just... <laughs> They, they find ways around, you know. There's definitely a around. Right, so that could either be a bug or a feature, as they say. A uh, bug or a feature. Right? Um, okay, thank you. I guess if you're gonna, well, we're about to end, so I just want to say thank you for your contributions. Um, thank you all.